So when, uh, when there are big events that happen, um, one of the first things to do in, in thinking about Sunday is look at the lectionary, which is, the, if you're not familiar with it, uh, the churches that, uh, like the, uh, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutheran, Episcopalian, I think the Presbyterian churches, um, use a lectionary, which is a set of readings that are predetermined. It's like a three-year cycle, and they just pop up on a given day because it, that's how it was uh, set up. And they basically tell the the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus throughout the uh, tied to the to the church calendar. Uh, so I looked at the the gospel reading, and it was the reading that uh, Emily. It's one of those really hard readings. It's like, oh my gosh, no preacher wants to preach on that particular reading. It's like the, it's the bad news version of the good news or something. But um, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so relevant. Um, you know, elections are semi-controlled and ritualized phenomena, crowd phenomena. They're all about crowds. It's taking the temperature of a national crowd. Um, and the, the reading today that Emily gave was, um, it takes place in a crowd. The whole setting is a, is a series of crowds because the uh, ministry of Jesus is reaching its climax. Passover is just around the corner, the Passover in which Jesus died. Uh, so the crowds are already gathering in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was a, a city about the size of Ann Arbor, and it's kind of like football Saturday. It like doubled in size at least around the, the high holy days. And Jesus is drawing by this time big crowds, and he's especially drawing big crowds when he's in the temple because that's like the center of everything, and he's the big phenom of the season. Uh, for his disciples, those crowds are a measure of their master's worth. And they're also kind of by extension uh, a, a measure of their worth. Like they're worth this guy who's drawing all these awesome big crowds. The disciples still want Jesus to leverage his popularity to overthrow the Ro Roman occupation force. And there's no doing that without a crowd. So they're excited and they're into the crowd. But Jesus had a thing about crowds. He loved the people in the crowds, but he didn't trust what happened to people in crowds. Since the, the beginning of human time, uh, groups racked with internal conflicts had a single mechanism to achieve a temporary peace. This is before court systems and, and all that. But this, this mechanism is still at play today. It's one of the oldest human mechanisms for dealing with conflict in a community. As accusations go flying and conflicts multiply in any group, the community would single out an individual or group and coalesce into a mob. Once the unlucky ones were expelled or killed, the contagious violence would end, like miraculously, for a time. For perhaps thousands of years, this was the only way that communities had, human groups had, to keep peace in, in the um, face of all these internal conflicts. So the archaic myths bear witness to this. There's always in these ancient myths, there's an innocent victim thought to be guilty by everybody whose death brings peace, founds a city, founds a nation, a whole new order of things. The God that Jesus served was different though. Yahweh was the God who proclaimed the innocence of those targeted in this way. 
Thanks to the Hebrew Bible, we now call them scapegoats. One could say the innocence of the scapegoated individual or groups is the unique revelation of the Hebrew Bible culminating in the Jewish Messiah, who's what? An innocent who lost his life at the hands of a crowd and rose from the dead to demonstrate his innocence in, in a way that couldn't be controverted. So all the other myths, the archaic myths that are circulating at the time the Bible was formed, were told in a sense by the lynchers. But this story, the gospel story, would be told by the lynched and by the lynched followers of the lynched. So, like I said, Jesus had a thing about crowds. He did not trust them. Even when they were supporting him, and at this stage they're supporting him, and he didn't want his disciples to trust the crowds either. So let's take this reading in, in sections that Emily read. I'm just going to repeat it, and we're going to go through it section by section. I'm going to ask you to work a little bit here, but we've got to do some work right now. When some were speaking about, uh, speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. He's saying, first of all, don't be awed by what awes the crowd. You know, crowds are often uh, animated by desire. That's what brings them together in the beginning. Um, could be all in good fun. In fact, some of the best time you can have is in a crowd that is animated by a single desire. I mean, it's a blast. In 2003, uh, Rich, where's Rich? Um, there's Rich, yeah. In 2003, he remembers this, the Cubs were five outs away from getting into the World Series. They're, they're playing at Wrigley Field. The Cubs fans are united by a shared desire. It's awesome energy. The Florida uh, Marlins batter pops up into foul territory and the Cubs outfielder was about to catch the ball, which is like going into the stands, when a lifelong Cubs fan just reacted by reaching for the ball and he ended up deflecting it out of the Cubs outfielder's glove. The Marlins rallied and beat the Cubs five outs away from getting into the World Series. The fan who reached out for that ball instinctively had to be escorted away by the police for his own protection and he had to live undercover because his name and address were made public on the major league board uh, message, message boards. That crowd just turned in a minute. So these temple crowds are united by the desire for the temple's beauty. What a, what a, what a cool, energizing thing. The di disciples of Jesus are feeling connected to the crowd by this like shared awe. Well, wow, we're in the, in the temple. But Jesus knows how fast crowds can turn. He's on a mission that he knows will soon be misunderstood by the crowd and it will turn on him. They are gaga, his disciples, over the temple. But he's throwing cold water on his disciples. It's not just about he doesn't want them to like the temple. It, he wants to keep them from getting swept up in this crowd, which is um, bonding first around this shared desire. 
And we go on in the text, they asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he. And the time is near. Don't go after them. He's saying, watch out for those who use the energy of crowds for ends that have nothing to do with me. Using my name. So he's not talking about generic bad leaders whipping out crowds for bad ends, for nefarious means. He's talking about people using his name to this end. Remember, in this highly contentious Passover season, varied interests were vying to channel, to direct the energy of these very crowds that were being drawn by Jesus. So you had Roman interests, you had the household of the corrupt puppet king Herod, kind of half Jewish, but in, in alignment with Rome. You had the Jerusalem elite who benefited from the, you know, the extraction economy that subsidized the temple complex in Herod's palace at the expense of the peasantry, who Jesus is popular mainly with the peasantry. Soon this Jesus-loving crowd would be turned against him by those varied interests. So Jesus knew that even his closest disciples could get turned by a crowd, especially when the scapegoat mechanism is starting to kick in. See, crowds are prone to manipulation. Someone gives um, voice to the shadow side of human nature, starts slinging accusations against vulnerable groups and individuals, and unless it's checked, you have a lynch mob. So he's talking about this happening in his name. That's the part that we have to tune into. He's talking about this happening in his name. It's a special warning for his followers. Now Peter, his closest disciple, demonstrates that even the closest disciple was not immune to the power of crowds to turn your heads, even if that meant Peter turning on Jesus. So any religion, any religion, any like um, organized collection of individuals, but any religion in particular can be manipulated in this way. And Christianity is no exception. That's just an historical fact. Christians in Europe have done this many times when fascists whipped up the anger of crowds against various groups. Christians in the United States have done this many times in our history. I mean, I think it was about 15 years ago, Billy Graham had to publicly apology, apologize at the kind of the end of his active career because the Nixon tapes came out from many years earlier and a younger Billy Nixon, uh, Billy, um, <laughs> Billy Nixon, Billy, he was kind of Billy Nixon right there. Billy Graham was heard on the tapes agreeing with Nixon's diatribes against the Jews in the Oval Office, laughing along with it, just one of those things. Nixon was courting Graham because he wanted access to his crowds and Graham was probably courting Nixon because, you know, who wouldn't want to be in the company of a powerful person like the president? You know, we should not be surprised when 81% of white evangelicals supported a leader who directed the frustrations of a crowd against people of color, immigrants, Muslims, journalists, 
uh, women who didn't fit his mold. Now we have virtually every minority uh, group living in a state of high alert, many in our own congregation. I mean, this week, I, I, I don't know how many individuals I talked to, and I said, how are you doing? And if they were part of a, any minority group in that list that I, that I included, or LGBT, they were deeply, deeply disturbed. I'd never seen anything like it, and I grew up in the 60s. In the Vietnam War era, I was here at the University of Michigan when there were bomb threats and that, and marches and, and all that kind of stuff. I never saw anything like this from so many different groups of vulnerable people. This is not just a theory. This is real, and it's now. So these words, do not go after them, are for a time just like this. The danger is not just like the leader, but the danger is this seductive crowd dynamic that kicks in. And I think we're seeing that, aren't we? You know, many of us have dear loved ones, good people, who are swept up into this. I mean, this, this is the other thing that I've been hearing from people. It's like, oh man, I'm, I'm going back to, I'm going to home for Thanksgiving and I, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, it, it takes real courage and it takes wisdom to be faithful when you're at home for Thanksgiving dinner or for the holidays with people you love. And these issues are swirling around in this dynamic. Next week, I think we might actually talk about some strategies for this particular challenge. Um, showing contempt, for example, is, is not the way. Um, and, but there are some ways to, to deal with this very directly. So, and the fact that this, this warning comes to Jesus' closest disciples. These are, these are people who have left everything to follow him. The fact that they needed this warning, I mean, that should really humble us. You know, I think that's one of the things that, that's operating on many Americans, especially majority uh, Americans. It's like, well, gee, our institutions are robust and strong and, you know, this kind of stuff. It can happen in Eastern Europe. It can happen in, you know, in Asia or whatever. But we're like, what are we, a special breed apart? And we're not, like, affected by human dynamics. So this is especially important for us to, to hear Jesus' warning. Beware that you are not led astray. He's, he's not talking about the other guys. He's saying, he's talking to his his peeps, beware that you are not led astray. It's a powerful dynamic that's unfolding. The next section, here's the, here's the one you're like, oh man, do I, I'm supposed to talk about this? When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. 
You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Now, just a little historical background, because all of us kind of, you know, enculturated in um, uh, a lot of, like, popular Christianity think, oh, this is all about the end of the world and the second coming. Well, actually, it can be explained just by the immediate historical context that Jesus is facing. So he, he's warning against rumors of wars and insurrections. This is actually a reference to the Jewish-Roman wars that were on the verge of starting. They began in 66 AD. There were three of them, three Jewish revolts that were, that were uh, led to crushing defeats. They, that, that sequence ended in 136 AD. Jesus is speaking in 26 AD, roughly. So he's talking about something that he's, you know, he sees on the horizon. It turned out to be about 40 years down the road. And he's predicting this uh, window for the gospel to spread in the region, but always under the threat of persecution, naturally, because he's feeling that threat himself. And he knows that his disciples will follow right into that. So this is not the end of the world, you know, in that ultimate sense so much as the end of their world. He's saying, don't be alarmed by the terror that flows through crowds when this stuff happens. Wow. Don't be alarmed by the terror that flows through crowds. You know, I mean, human beings were mammals. Uh, most mammals are herd animals. Um, our survival depends on being in a herd. If, if the gazelles on the edge of the herd see a praying animal, attack animal, they get alarmed and, at the edge of the crowd, and that alarm shoots through the herd. So, so fear shoots through crowds as a survival mechanism of evolution. We are biologically vulnerable to contagious fear. That's just our lot as human beings. But Jesus is asking us to be reflective about this fear. When you're feeling that fear contagion, question it. You know, don't be alarmed by wars and in, uh, rumors of wars and insurrection. I mean, there are many more rumors of these things than actual disasters, right? Of all the things you've worried about. I mean, what percentage of them have actually... Right, but that's not exactly his point, is it? That's not exactly his point. Jesus is not denying that there will be wars and insurrections. There certainly will be, in fact. In fact, after saying, don't be terrified, he goes on to talk about a great period of distress and persecution for his followers in particular. Can we agree that there isn't a trace of sugarcoating on his don't be terrified. Can, can we agree with that? Uh, you know, when things are really bad, when things are really bad, the sugar coating on the comfort is worse than the fear, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's worse than the fear. That sugar coating. In, in, in the first two months after Nancy died, if anyone said, She's in a better place. Or, I see her dancing and playing the tambourine. I wanted to vomit. 
I, I mean, a few times I actually said, and as a pastor, you get, you know, you have a lot of restraint. You're like, oh, yeah, thank you. And, you know, a few times I said, I'm not worried about Nancy. I'm missing her like crazy. And so her being somewhere else playing the tambourine, it, you know, I, I know she's doing great. You know, I'm the one I'm, I'm worried about. But Jesus is offering what you might call sugar-free comfort. Just listen. Don't be terrified by, by rumors of war and rest. These will come before it's all over. But first you'll suffer persecution, just as I am. You'll be arrested, just as I will be. You'll be brought before hostile rulers, as I will be. You'll be betrayed by your closest friends, as I will be. You'll be hated by the crowds, as I soon will be. So... Looking for a silver lining in these words of comfort? All we have is, you'll have a chance to testify. You will bear witness to some even powerful people, but don't be nervous. I'll give you the words when the time comes. Um, I'm married to an Episcopal priest. You know, we always talk about the reading because she's always, you know, doing her homily based on the reading. So we were talking this over and, and I was commenting on this part and, and my priest wife, Julia, called this an AFCO. And, and I said, what's that? Now, you got to understand, my, my, my wife, Julia, was raised in Holland, Michigan by a C.S. Lewis scholar and a long line of, you know, evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians. She could not say, uh, dumb it. I guess in Holland, the Dutch say dumb it instead of the D-A, you know. So they don't want to say, damn it, so they say dumb it. She couldn't in her family say dumb it because it reminded you of that other word that was a bad word, you know. <laughs> So she says, she called it an AFCO. And I say, what's that? And she says, another effing growth opportunity. <laughs> I said, that is so good. You know, when you come from a family background with you, when you, when you use the word, oh, it's just so sweet. It's so choice. Another effing growth opportunity. But actually, that's, that's a pretty big silver lining. My dad was in the infantry in World War II, and he was actually injured on November 11th, um, uh, 1944. <clears throat> and he said the biggest fear of the soldier wasn't getting killed, it was not doing your job and letting your, felt your buddies down. Getting killed, of course, was a big fear. <laughs> but this was a worse fear in the infantry. So. It's that even bigger fear that Jesus is addressing. You're not going to blow it when the time comes. You'll be faithful. I'll give you words to bear witness. I'll, I'll, you'll be able to do things that you didn't ever picture yourself doing because I will be right there with you, I promise. And the witness, remember, in this context is a witness to the innocence of everyone targeted by the crowd. That's the substrate of the understanding of the Bible, including the New Testament. So, when a presidential candidate is asked during the campaign, do you support a registry of all Muslims who live in the United States? And that candidate says, I would implement that absolutely well, that's when the followers of Jesus say, well, put my name on the registry. I mean, 
put my name on the registry. Muslim means uh, submitted to God. If the Muslims get put on a ministry, let's go sign up and, you know, uh, identify as Muslim and get our names on the ministry right along with them. That's one that I think is going to be hard to pull off. But, but as you say, that, uh, that's naturally what I think because I've been living with this stable situation for a long time. Okay. So that's the silver lining. We will be given power to bear witness when the time comes. We'll do things that we can't ever picture ourselves doing because he'll be with us. But there's also this not insignificant addition at the very end of today's reading. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Not a hair of your head will perish. You know, if you've had it with words of sugar-coated comfort from those who have nothing to worry about because they aren't the target of any crowds, then you're probably, you've probably developed an allergy to almost every word of comfort when you see an S-storm shaving up. That allergy is to the sugar coating, and it's well-advised, that allergy. But these are different words because they're the words of someone who will soon be scapegoated himself, he will lose it all, and then he will gain it all. The hairs of your head that won't perish are the hairs of the head on the resurrection body is what he's talking about. It's resurrection faith that says, no matter what happens, in the end, I'm gonna be okay. It takes resurrection faith to have that perspective. And what this crazy faith is meant to generate is people who are willing, in the midst of one of these crowd phenomena forming into a mob, to separate from that mob and to bear witness, to give testimony, to just speak the truth, especially to speak the truth about targeted individuals and groups. That's what the book of Acts the sequel to Luke's gospel. So it's sometimes called Luke-Acts. It's the story of the early church. It's all about. In the book of Acts, ringleaders are constantly in one city after another, stirring up mobs in all different places. The followers of Jesus are targeted by the mobs. And in the middle of all that unfolding, they stand up and they bear witness. So whatever actually unfolds over the next few years, let's stay close to this Jesus. He's an inspirational leader who knows this territory and we need some inspiration. And let's stay close to each other, like extra attentive to one another and extra attentive to the people around us, especially those in a state of heightened alert and distress. And Emily, why don't you lead us in a, a little meditation? I just finished the sermon. We're going to take a little extended meditation, and we'll do a guided, um, do it in a guided way, meaning I'll just sort of walk you through it as we do it. So we'll do this, just get comfortable, get in a place in your seat where you're feeling a little more relaxed. You can close your eyes if you want, you don't have to. You can open your hands if you want, you don't have to. And let's start to slow our breathing. If it helps you to slow your breathing, you can do the Jesus prayer. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and on the, when you release your breath, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Breathe out. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It can be challenging to find rest sometimes. It might be our responsibilities, our schedules, our relationships, our elections, our oppressions, our fears. It may be the little things in life that seem to nip at our heels almost every day. Sometimes it's something that seems so big that we question if God can even see past it. In the Old Testament, King David sometimes felt like this too. He struggled to find rest. And in Psalm 62, David calmly and gently reminds himself that he needs rest and how to find that rest. The word translated as rest in the passage literally means to wait in silence. So as we begin, let's take a moment to just wait in silence on God. Pay attention to your breathing and to your body. Feel the chair beneath you. you're tall enough, feel the floor beneath your feet. Notice any tension in your muscles. As you breathe in, imagine focusing your breath on those tense areas of your body. And as you breathe out, just feel those relax. Now let's speak to our own souls as David spoke to his soul by gently saying to ourselves, yes, my soul, find rest in God. If you're not sure how you feel about God, maybe try find rest in love. Right? We believe God is love. So as you breathe in, yes, my soul, as you breathe out, find rest in God. my soul find rest in God our soul is our complete self with all of its desires its passions, its appetites, its emotions imagine yourself walking toward a room it's a room that's filled with your fears and with your anxieties Pay attention to your surroundings. Where are you? Is it inside? Is it outside? What does it look like? You may feel some trepidation as you approach the door to that room. Pause outside. What might you find in there?
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. psalmist goes on to say my hope comes from him my hope comes from him let's think for a moment about that word hope what do you hope for what do you hope happens with those anxieties behind the door Breathe in, my hope, breathe out, comes from him. My hope comes from him. Now imagine that Jesus is standing near you. Where is he? What's he doing? Is he standing far away? Is he standing close by? What's his mood like? Is he saying anything to you? Looking at you? My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my fortress, says the psalmist. Truly he is my rock. The word rock here is not a pebble that you could pick up and put in your pocket. It's not even a giant boulder. To capture what David was expressing, we picture like an entire mountain made of solid rock. He is my rock. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it it had its foundation on the rock. As we breathe in, he is my rock. As we breathe out, he is my fortress. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He 
is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. A fortress is a place of safety and of protection. We may not all have people seeking to kill us as David often did, though some of us do. We all face dangers and enemies every day. Let's just take a moment to think through our day and to consider our different vulnerabilities. What are your physical vulnerabilities? What are your mental vulnerabilities? What are your emotional vulnerabilities? Now think of a place where you have felt very safe and protected from all of these threats. If you've never had such a place, try to imagine what do you think a place like that might look like. Jesus is my fortress. He is that space. He is my rock. He is my fortress. As we near the end of this time of meditation, recall the things that you're hoping for. Recall your hope for that room of anxieties. What are you trusting in to bring these hopes to pass? Are you trusting in money, in technology, power, government? The psalmist says, do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. And though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Maybe you're trusting a person to help bring those to pass. You might even be trusting in yourself. And so what we say to you, Lord, is that we do not trust in money. We do not trust in power. We do not trust in politicians. We do not trust in technology. We trust in you. We rest in you. Our soul finds rest in God alone. He alone is our rock and our salvation. Amen.